Sawbones is a show about medical history, and nothing the hosts say should be taken as medical advice or opinion. It's for fun. Can't you just have fun for an hour and not try to diagnose your mystery boil? We think you've earned it. Just sit back, relax, and enjoy a moment of distraction from that weird growth. You're worth it. <laughs> And welcome to Sawbones, a marital tour of misguided medicine. I'm your co-host, Justin McElroy. And I'm Sydney McElroy. Well, Sydney, it's it's cold and flu season. Yes, it is, Justin. Uh, did you get your flu shot? You know I did. Good. Because no matter what, we're not going to talk about the flu because we've talked about the flu before. I just want to briefly say, no matter what you have heard on the news about how effective or ineffective the flu shot may be, you still should get your flu shot. We still recommend it. Even if there's a chance it's not going to protect you, there's a chance it will. And also, we have reason to believe that because of some cross-reactivity, even if it's the wrong strain, you may have a uh, less severe version of the flu if you get it. So, as someone who has had their flu shot and then still got the flu, I will still strongly recommend to you, get your flu shot. Get your flu shot. Um, but I, this time, it's not just cold. It's not just flu. There's a lot of bugs this time of year. That's right. This is the time of year where everybody gets, you know, the sniffles. And they come into your office and they say, Sydney, make me feel better. It's true. It's, uh, it, it's very frustrating to have upper respiratory infections, meaning like the stuff that makes you have a runny nose and a sore throat and cough and congestion and that kind of stuff. Even like sinus infections that kind of in this same arena because most of them are caused by viruses mm -hmm. and there's not much we can do to expedite your healing from a viral infection in this case there are other viruses maybe but for this case it's usually just time and fluids and rest and you'll get better no magic um, pill for that but one thing that generally will not help unless you do do happen to have a bacterial infection are antibiotics and you get a lot of people asking you for those i know it's it's a common problem uh because you know sometimes you have an infection and your doctor tells you you need antibiotics and then other times your doctor might tell you you don't and so it can be hard to understand why sometimes it seems like we're withholding something right like well this treatment has helped me before why won't you give it to me again um but the truth is if you have a viral infection which you most likely do Antibiotics aren't going to help you at all. They do have side effects. And every time we misuse antibiotics, and we're going to talk about this a little more, we run the risk of building up more resistance to these antibiotics. All right. Well, so I think it's a good time of year to talk about antibiotics. Let's do it. So thank you to Samantha and Ian and Austin and Jesse and Sydney and Matthew and Cecilia and Allison and Sage and Megan. And I think a lot more people have suggested this over time. It got overwhelming. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why we haven't covered this yet. This is a big topic in medicine, right? Right. 
antibiotics. The story doesn't really formally begin until the 1900s. That's mm-hmm. like the origins of what we think of today as antibiotics. Uh, but we have been trying to treat infections, even when we didn't know that's what they were, for a really long time, which is the truth for everything, right? We right. don't know what this is, but we're going to put some stuff on it and see what happens. Some honey, some frog legs. Well, honey, you Done. use honey, but honey's not a bad idea. Nice. Crushed in this it. Case. Got it in one. Take that, old-timey doctors. And that was one of the mainstays of early, uh, what what we have, what we now understand is an infection, meaning some sort of bacteria is growing on something somewhere that it shouldn't. Mm-hmm. Uh, honey was one of the most common treatments, and that probably was, in some cases, somewhat effective. It doesn't treat all infections, but it probably did help sometimes, especially with skin issues. Um, the ancient Egyptians would actually rub bread mold on wounds that looked like they were not healing properly. Now we would recognize as infection. That's weird. Yes. That's really, really weird. Because as we will get into, that may have been. You may, know, would it have worked? Uh, maybe. It, I don't know what bread mold it was, but. Maybe some bread mold. Maybe it. Let me say this. I don't know if it worked or not, but using mold to treat infections was practiced throughout history in Egypt, in Greece, in Rome, in China, and in Serbia. Wow. So, now, we have said this on the show before, just because a lot of people did it doesn't mean it worked. It is but counterintuitive enough, though, that it makes, me, it makes you wonder, like... Did they see some effect? Or do they understand on some deeper level? Sydney, do you believe that there are some medicines that we know instinctively work? Medicines like, that we know instinctively work? That we've that we instinctively know what sometimes what could help us. Do you think the instinct could drive? Like it's an interesting question. I, I we're so far removed from that now in modern society. It'd be hard for me to, to make a get. I mean, there are certainly things we're programmed to know are bad for us. Right. You know, there are things that we naturally avoid instinctually avoid because they're toxic. So I don't know. It's an interesting question, but I mean, there's some, our whole podcast would lead you to believe otherwise, uh, yeah, though. Yeah, <laughs> evidence to the contrary. This does seem like kind of an outlier. Um, the ancient Egyptians also accidentally ingested an antibiotic called tetracycline, which is still in use today, regularly. How? Well, they would brew this this kind of beer. It was sort of a chunky Ugh. bread beer thing yeah is a mixture that they drank a lot about three percent alcohol and it was like this fermented bread porridgey beer stuff (laughs) (laughs) because of naturally occurring bacteria in their soil and in the things they grew and all this the beer would contain high levels of tetracycline as like kind of an an Uh, extra product that was created in the process Mm -hmm. um and this was long before we actually isolated tetracycline and figured out that it was an antibiotic and used it to treat infections so it was the thing is though the beer was elevated to not it was not just a drink it was not just something you would imbibe and it was not just used for for fun times it was (laughs) not you know a lot of people drank beer and you would think oh because they we're all getting intoxicated and it was fun. No, beer was thought to be a healthy drink. It, this was this beverage was thought to be um, 
some I don't want to say magical, but somewhat magical and spiritual and important to the body, important mm-hmm. to the and culture st- and their and you existence. You still believe that to this day, yeah? I'm no, I'm not saying that. No, I just I am a fan of beer and its magical properties. I'm not going to say beer has magical properties. I'm looking forward. <laughs> To a time when I could drink it again at the end of this pregnancy. <laughs> it's I'm, I know it is not magical. <laughs> I I I'm kind of jealous of you because like I've never denied myself something I love that much for <laughs> for ten months. So like I'm I'm jealous of you that you're getting this great experience because it's mm-hmm. gonna be so good afterwards. And I won't understand that. <laughs> You know, this is the point where I urge everyone to drink responsibly. (laughs) Do you feel bad for me because I want to experience that great taste of 10 months without beer? Yeah, no, I don't. Okay. I don't at all. I don't feel bad for you in any regards to this pregnancy. Fair. (laughs) That's I'll take it. Anyway, so beer was used medicinally for all kinds of different things. Stomach ailments, coughs, constipation. Um, There's a there's a prescription that you can find for a beer enema that people would take. Um, and we have figured all this Please, out. Please just do Natty Light. If it's going up your butt anyway, <laughs> that or the beast. Don't waste something good. Yeah, don't don't make it a good beer. But uh, we know this, by the way, because we've studied bones and found tetracycline deposits in the bones mm. of, of ancient Egyptians. Guess so. the beer wasn't that great because they died. Well, I mean... We'll cover mortality at some other point. Uh, Traditional Chinese medicine relied on a number of different herbal medications for what would have been, like again, things that we now know to be infectious. Because people would look for certain signs, like, well, that's hot and red and swollen and there's pus coming out, so we treat it with these things. Now we would say, oh, that's infected. Mm -hmm. Um, And and some of these things have been found to have natural antimicrobial activity, meaning that you put this herb in a Petri dish with some bacteria and the bacteria won't grow there. That doesn't always mean that they'll work in the human body the same way, Mm -hmm. but we have, we have observed that. In addition, it should be noted that traditional Chinese medicine brought us um, artemisinin, which is a plant-based medicine that has been used for thousands of years for all kinds of different ailments, but it's very effective against malaria. Now, when it comes to the Middle Ages, typically on this show, you start making fun of people. <laughs> I, yeah, not the, not the people, although, I mean, holistically speaking, yes, but the Middle Ages is normally where if we are building up a head of steam treating something, we all take a collective dump. I mean, I can't think of a nicer way to say it than that, but we usually take a dump during the Middle Ages. Now... I, I have to tell you that there is something where that came out of the Middle Ages when it comes to fighting infection that actually is useful. Excalibur. So, <laughs> That's the no. only good thing about the Middle Ages. No, it was not a sword. It was not a... The magical sword Excalibur. It was not, no, it was not a sword. Uh, so I, I want to tell you about, and this was something I think we independently had a lot of listeners when this came out in the news mm-hmm. tell us we should talk about, and we haven't covered it before, so here you go. Bald's eye salve. This this is a recipe for a medicine. Okay. Eye salve. It's a salve for eye your salve. eyes. You know something. Is this you put a on brand? Well, it's from a guy bald. Oh, okay. Who made it? It's weird to think of. Yeah, it's from his. It's from his book, Bald's Leech Book, which is a medical text from the 10th century in England. Mm-hmm. So, which was a collection of a lot of recipes from the day. You know. For, for different ailments. So this was used for styes, which were known at the time as winds. 
to okay. a sty. You know what a sty is on your eye? It's a little infected area on your eyelid. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm talking yeah, about? Okay. okay. So this is a salve you would put on your eye. It contained wine, garlic, some sort of um, allium species like a leek or an onion, mm-hmm. and ox gall. And so you mix all this together. You have to put them in a brass vessel for nine days. Well, nine nights, I should say. And then at the end of that, you use it. So a team of researchers in 2015 took this recipe and reproduced it exactly, including the nine nights in a brass vessel and all that, and then used it in Petri dishes as well as in some tissue from chronic mouse wounds Mm -hmm. that had uh, staph bacteria, specifically MRSA staph bacteria, which is the kind that's very resistant, methicillin resistant staph aureus. Mm -hmm. So that's that's what a lot of people get scared when they hear that. You think it's called the superbug, right? Um, So very resistant bacteria. So they tried it against all this stuff and it seemed to work. Now, this was not in a human body or even in a live mouse body, I should say. It right. was in tissue from. So what would this do in the human body? I, I don't I don't know. I can't tell you. But at least in Petri dishes and in tissue cultures, it worked to kill the bacteria. Um, they even kind of put it up head to head against vancomycin, an antibiotic that we commonly use for MRSA infections. And they said it worked just as well, if not better. What? How, why? It's interesting. The theory is that it has to do with the allium, the leek or the onion. There are compounds in there that we know are antimicrobial. And so, but but they don't, but this doesn't work on its own. You have to follow the directions. You have to mix these ingredients and you have to leave them for nine nights. It doesn't, they tried variations of it and it didn't work unless you followed that recipe exactly. That's so strange. It's very strange. Um, there was also some theories that because there was copper in the pot... And copper is known to be antimicrobial. We've, we've referenced this before. Copper inhibits the growth of bacteria. Mm-hmm. That maybe it was something synergistic between the allium and the copper. And anyway, the point is, it worked. And then it began to call into question all of these old recipes from, I mean, the this Middle Ages or any time in history. This is undermining the very premise of our show. <laughs> this is infuriating. Now, I, I will say this. How to, am I supposed to sit in judgment from my perch, my modern perch, and judge my ancestors? To, to be fair, they were not the first researchers to have tried this. In 2005, a team of researchers did it, and they could not reproduce. The, they could not make this happen. Mm. I shouldn't say reproduce because they did it first, but they they could not get these same results. So maybe they didn't leave for nine whole nights or something. Well, that and they also called that into question actually in the 2015 study. I don't think they did it exactly right. So it's hard to say. I think it is definitely worth investigating and repeating because as we're going to get into towards the end of the show, antibiotics, if you don't use them right, don't work forever. So it's always good to look for alternative methods that work to treat infections. It's so sad that you have to add that coda. <laughs> that work. That work. I don't want to just say alternatives because there are lots of alternatives. Right. You put anything on a wound. Um, I, you just shouldn't. So with well, all of these principles that we've we've kind of talked about, all these things that have been gleaned throughout history, people using bread molds and honeys and these salves that seem to actually work. Um There were a lot of efforts, all these principles between that and then getting to like modern day antibiotics like penicillin. You'd think there was a direct line. But of course, we take a detour into using things like heavy metals for a good bit of history at this point. Mm -hmm. Mercury and arsenic 
or like <coughs> how we mainly treat infections, especially things like syphilis, which we've talked about before, things that um, were very caustic and painful and not necessarily the most effective. And we really don't get back into the story of the stuff that actually worked well and didn't harm people so much until we discovered microbes. So we've talked about this before. We figured out that there were what were first called animacules. That's a cooler name. It is kind of a cool name. Germs, bugs, bacteria, microbes, things that cause infection. We figured out the germ theory of disease, that that's why people get sick. That's why infections happen. And then we start trying to figure out okay now we know why an infection is or now we know why this is happening we have a name for it we have a target for it Mm -hmm. and the and the person who really spearheaded that was paul ehrlich he was one of the first to use like a systematic approach to figuring out his idea was that there's a silver bullet you can you need to target the bacteria target the germ and then we can treat the infection you know kill the bug treat the infection save the person hey what's a germ what like what's a germ like something that causes disease like it could have is a bacteria a germ mm-hmm. is a virus a germ yeah so germ is a blanket term yeah germ I mean, we don't really use like medically speaking i don't often say germ in, like, a, in like a you know an actual jargon asked context me this morning why she was sick and i told her she came to the right place um and i told her it was a cold germ and then she said what's a germ and i was like uh Watch your YouTube, sweetie. (laughs) (laughs) No, I mean, when we talk about the germ theory of disease, the idea is that there is an infectious agent that we can look at that that is a that is an actual thing that we can isolate that is causing disease as opposed to like the miasma theory or an imbalance of humors or something else like that. Got it. Okay, sorry to break flow. So Ehrlich wanted to find an effective and not so toxic treatment for syphilis. That was his his big goal he tried out lots of different substances on rabbits with syphilis and the sixth compound of the 600 series worked it was compound 606 later known as salversan or neosalversan which was a less toxic form and it was uh, the big syphilis treatment for a while until we get to the 1940s and i know this sounds like an offshoot because we're still not getting into the real antibiotics that we use but the principles he used to develop this Mm -hmm. is what would lead to everything that that is about to happen in antibiotic history so he deserves that credit what's about to happen well, I'm going to tell you, but first let's head to the billing department. Let's go. The medicines, the medicines that escalate macabre for the mouth. We have just started rehearsing for the summer theater. That's right. Summer starts in March around these parts, and that means we don't have much time at all in the evenings to make dinner. But we will not be just consuming Wendy's, uh, although there will be some Wendy's consumed, but we are going to have a little extra help with Factor, which delivers ready-to-eat, delicious meals right to your door, and not like junky stuff you get out of the freezer aisle, whatever. This is real, high-quality, chef-crafted stuff that in two minutes, you're ready to eat it. I'm talking about some Southwestern-style turkey and mac. I think this week, I'm gonna be enjoying a shredded chicken taco bowl is 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 part of my plan um but they got like fancy stuff. listen to this where are you gonna get this truffle butter filet mignon i mean seriously from 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 a, a box 
pre-prepared. All I got at two minutes. I'm eating filet mignon. That sounds delicious. Yeah, it sounds delicious. And you can give these a try. And it's not just these meals. We're talking pancakes, smoothies. They got some great wellness shots that are surprisingly delicious. And the meals you just eat and eat. There's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup. Get as much as you need by choosing your meals every week. You're going to get exactly what you want. No surprises here. Uh, And the meals, I can say, are delicious. So what do you got to lose? Head on over to factormeals.com slash sawbones50 and use code sawbones50 to get 50% off. That's code sawbones50 at factormeals.com slash sawbones50 to get 50% off. Sydney, you know how you're always saying that you'd like to build a Justin McQuarrie fan site full of all your favorite quotes, clips, videos, and hunky pictures of beloved podcaster Justin McElroy? I don't remember. Well, there's that- no need to wait any longer, Sydney, because Squarespace is going to make it easier than you could possibly believe to make a website uh, all about your favorite hunky podcasting superstar. I don't think I was going Squarespace, to— Squarespace, what is it? It's a tool—think of it as— the palette, the palette of a web design artist. But you don't have to be a web design artist. You could just take stuff off the palette that is created by real people that know what they're really doing and put it from the palette onto the easel. The metaphor is broken down. Basically, you're going to be able to create great-looking websites that have fantastic customer support and help you unlock your creativity and do whatever you want to with your small business or podcaster obsession. You can sell products. You can uh, post your videos. You can share your stories about how Justin has shaped your life and is also a fantastic father. Folks, you got to stop waiting to make your Justin McElroy fan site. Go to squarespace.com slash sawbones for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch your Justin McElroy fan site, use offer code sawbones to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Well, Sid, you were gonna, uh, we were gonna get into uh, the, what what doors were open in terms of antibiotic research at this point. So, with this concept that there that we now have something to target, researchers got busy trying to find a way to, you know, actually kill these bacterial invaders. Mm-hmm. Um, we usually think of penicillin as the first antibiotic. Yeah, and I'm going to tell you about penicillin, but it is it's fair to mention that sulfa drugs. Sulfamethox is all very commonly used now in combination with trimethoprim, which is something called Bactrim, which a lot of people have heard of. Mm-hmm. Um, we're actually the first to come along, not that one, but sulfa drugs in general. There was something that was, the brand name was Prontosil, the generic name, if you can do it, I if believe anyone in is interested. <laughs> uh, Sulfonamidocrisodine. So phonomonocrystidine, mm-hmm. of course. Right. Easy. Was It was synthesized by Bayer chemists and marketed in the 30s. So it actually predates penicillin. Um, but the problem was the active part of the drug, sulfonilamide, was a dye that had been in use for a while. It was interesting. A lot of people observed that dyes would cling to certain things in Petri dishes. And so it was a, it was a way to, oh, well, it targets that because it only attaches to that. Hmm. And actually, oh, ac- we accidentally killed this cell with this dye. Hey, hey. we killed this cell with this dye. So Our a lot of people started to notice this. Good these news, things. guys. We don't have to finish the experiment. <laughs> we did it. <laughs> we did it. That was so easy. We can't see it anymore, but we did it. Yeah. So, but the problem was, since sulfonilamide was already widely in use for other things, they couldn't patent it. So a bunch of different companies started making these 
kind of things to cure infections, sort of maybe with questionable means really quickly. This is also always a good situation. Yeah. This is also why um, when we talk about resistance to certain medications and bacteria not being killed anymore by that drug, Mm -hmm. sulfur resistance was one of the first to spring up is because we were just kind of willy nilly throwing these sulfur compounds at, at infections. The first antibiotic that was really formally made and we used and kind of changed the course of human history, I think you have to give to penicillin. Mm-hmm. And most people kind of know the story, right? Uh, mold was involved. Yes. Louis Pasteur. Nope. <laughs> okay. Well, let me tell you. <laughs> You're so close. You got the mold. Uh, the mold I knew. So Scottish scientist Alexander Fleming. You know that Fleming penicillin. Baby, I love you. We've been over this, though. You know I don't know any of this stuff. It's not a <laughs> gag. It's not a bit. What were you so angry about? There was something something else you were angry at me about yesterday. Because you didn't know why you couldn't eat before surgery. Yeah. You were mad. <laughs> you were mad at me. Anyway, Fleming and worked. And I was like, uh, okay, well, it's your field. What's uh, What was Mario's original name? And you were like, uh, Jumpman? And I was like, okay, well, I guess we're done talking (laughs) uh anyway fleming worked at saint mary's hospital and um he went on vacation for two weeks in the fall of 1928 and he left his lab in paddington home of paddington bear (laughs) uh hey that you know that he left it a complete mess patronize me smurl uh and he this was not uncommon for him he was not known to keep his bench clean his lab bench, his table, the big, ta- the experiment table. It's called the lab bench. Yeah, just in case you wondered. Anyway, he was he was he was not a fastidious scientist, so this was not unusual. And so he came back from his vacation, well rested in September, to find that a petri dish that he had left out was Staphylococcus aureus, Staph aureus, a bacteria that causes infections. Growing on it had become contaminated with a mold known as Penicillium notatum. And he also noticed that in the areas on the dish where the penicillium was growing, the staph bacteria were not. They Mm. had actually been lysed and kind of destroyed by the penicillium. Whereas the areas on the Petri dish where there was no penicillium, the staph was growing just fine. There's a t-shirt in this story somewhere it's just so wordy. It's like, yeah, my room's messy, but I'm trying to discover a new antibiotic. Maybe you didn't know that's how. And then, like, at this point, you're at the belly button. You're right. out of space. This is getting to be a little ridiculous. It's like a little wordy. <laughs> it's not like bumper sticker material, but there's something in there. Aren't we lucky no one told Fleming to clean his room? That And then that would be a great conversation starter. <laughs> That would prompt people to say, I don't, who is that? You know who else was messy? Fleming. Okay, again, that you haven't really gotten the nut into there, I think. (laughs) So this was not the first time that a Petri dish had become infected with a mold or, you know, that this had happened. He was just kind of the first one to stop and look at it and go, huh, maybe I should investigate this a little further. He, and, and we had suspected, as I mentioned, throughout history that mold had something to do with treating infections for a long time because we've been sticking moldy bread on infections for, you know, 
thousands of years. Mm -hmm. So this was not this was not a wild idea. The problem was trying to figure out exactly what it is in the mold that's stopping the bacteria from growing. I mean, you can't just grow mold on wounds willy nilly. That doesn't seem like a smart idea. Um, So that is what took a long time was to take that mold and isolate what is the compound in here that will help us treat infections and how can we do that? Just because something works in a Petri dish doesn't always mean it will work in the human body. And even if it will, making that happen is a that's a big process. Lots right. of research goes into that. So it took a long time. It actually wasn't until 1940. So now we've jumped from 1928 to 1940 wow. that he was doing this research and he was publishing. And another scientist, Dr. Howard Florey, who was a professor of pathology at Oxford University, got really excited about it and said, you know, I think we can help with this. So him and his, and another uh, biochemist that he worked with, Dr. Ernst Chain, started working on this process. How can we make more of this mold and isolate what in it will treat, you know, will kill the staph. So the problem that, and they, they were very successful in doing this, except that what they ran into is that it took them 2,000 liters of mold culture. So they had to create 2,000 liters of this mold in the lab to isolate enough penicillin, which was the what that was what they called the compound that they found that inhibited the growth of bacteria, mm-hmm. to treat a single case of sepsis in a person. Mm-hmm. That's a lot of mold. A lot of mold. To treat one person. And they were having trouble overcoming that because that what happened is they had this new thing. They were using it in their lab and it seemed to work really well. Um, And then there was a local case of a guy, Albert Alexander, who was a police constable who had been working in his rose garden when he nicked his face, Mm -hmm. probably, I'm assuming a thorn or something. And he developed a really horrible cellulitis from that infection of his skin, an abscess, meaning a big pocket of pus and infection under there. He became septic. He was dying. And they were giving him sulfa drugs, which were around at the time, and they weren't working. So... These two scientists, Chain and Flory, were like, hey, can we try our new penicillin? He's going to die anyway. Can we try this? We think this will help. And they did. And it was helping. Wow. And then they ran out. And then what happened? And then, unfortunately, he passed away. Great story, Sid. Sorry. Your top 10 medical so they, anecdotes. They knew it worked, uh, but they didn't uh-huh, know how, uh-huh. but they had to make more because they didn't even have enough in their lab to treat one person. I think I speak for all the audience when I say I didn't think that anecdote was going to shake out that way. I felt a <laughs> swelling of hope that you quickly doused with your uh, lack of mold. I'm sorry. They, they ran out of mold. Okay. Uh, Dr. Norman Heatley joined their crew and he started a lot, growing. Can I just take a brief... A moment to say a lot of good names in this episode already. Uh, Norman Heatley, Howard Florey, Ernst Chain. Don't mind if I do. Just like a lot. Of, Albert Alexander is even good. That's like a Agatha Christie name. That's, that's good stuff. Some good names in this app. And all of these people work together. We always give Fleming all the credit. And he does def- he definitely deserves credit for penicillin. But there are a lot of people helped get us from mold in a Petri dish to That's, a, that's always way science, right? There's very, it's very rare to find. Yes. It's just, I, th- I feel like in history books, you always just associate that one name. Yeah. I mean, Lorenzo made that oil by himself. But other than that, <laughs> that's about that, it. I don't think that's how that story goes. Mm. Uh, so Heatley joined the crew and he was growing vats of this mold 
in like bedpans. Like his lab was just covered with <laughs> all cool. the mold he could grow to get interns um, to try to overcome this. But obviously there there had to be something else to fix this because this was not going to be reproducible on a mass scale at this point. So a lab assistant, Mary Hunt, showed up one day with a cantaloupe that she had found covered in a mold, penicillium chrysogeum. And this strain yielded 200 times the amount of penicillin that the notatum did. Wow. So that's they, good. That's way more. So this definitely helped. Now they also uh, at some point started radiating it, which like amped it up to a thousand times more penicillin. So that, that was probably the even bigger breakthrough. And so they finally figured out how to make enough penicillin to actually be effective, to actually have some clinical impact on people. They took it to American pharmaceutical companies and they began pumping out what was then known as penicillin just in time for World War II. And you really saw a difference in uh, rates of death from infection if you look at like World War I compared to World War II mm -hmm. because in World War II we were able to use penicillin. Mm. Um, in March 1942, Ann Miller was treated with penicillin. She was the first civilian. And she was in a hospital in Connecticut in New Haven. She had had a miscarriage and had developed an infection afterwards and sepsis and was quite, quite sick. And typically at the time, you would expect someone in that position to not survive. Um, and penicillin saved her life. Yeah, all right. Yeah. So th there's the it's happy. A shame about her name. But other than that, pretty good. <laughs> there's the happy story you wanted. Thank you. So um, I appreciate it. In 1945, all these people we talked about essentially got a Nobel Prize for the discovery, except for Heatley. Do you know they left him out? Oh, why? Uh, it, the, it was just one of those, who knows, they just overlooked it or his name wasn't on the right paper or whatever. This was actually, um, I don't know if write it is the right word, but um, many decades later, they recognized him with like the first honorary doctorate they'd ever done. Hmm. Um, to kind of make up for leaving him out of the crew, <laughs> out scummy. of this out of this Ocean's Eleven crew that discovered penicillin, um, but they they won the Nobel Prize, and uh, in his speech, in his acceptance speech, uh, Fleming stood up and said, "Listen, this is great, and I'm very happy about this. I didn't." He said something to the effect of like, "I didn't know that day in the lab that I." had it discovered something that was going to change the course of mankind or save lives or so something very grandiose. But then he turned around and he said, you should also know this won't work forever. Bacteria get smarter. They do develop resistance over time. Just because it's killing bacteria now, if we use this too much, if we don't find other ways to treat infections, this won't work for us forever. He warned of this in 1945. Wow. Just a few short years after we had discovered and started using penicillin. One plus kill. <laughs> like, could we kick it for a decade? Was, I get it. I get how you guys work. A good scientist. No, like, I get it. But, like, can we just, can we just be, can we just be stoked about penicillin for a second? You came for a second. <laughs> and then resistance started building. And now let me All say, is it's still a problem in 2018. It could have kicked it for a decade and then <laughs> drop that on everybody. Let us just like chill out. They were seeing resistance by like the late 40s, early 50s. I mean, that's the problem. Like this stuff happens. Bacteria learn quickly and they grow. They grow and evolve faster than we do. So 
up. God, this is a fun episode. I'm really sorry. This is great. No, it's true. It's good. It's good. It's good. It's good. So, so from there, all other kinds of antibiotics started hitting the market. If you look at the intervening years, you know, different classes. Are they um, using basically the same like idea? Like, I, I mean, I, I, I know biochemistry isn't really your your field, but like, is it? It, well, I mean, in terms of how they kill bacteria, yeah, they're different. There are all kinds of different ways that they attack the bacteria because some are um, bactericidal, meaning they actually lice and kill the bacterial cells. Some are bacteriostatic, meaning they'll just stop them from growing. Um, and they target different things within the bacteria, which is why they're used against different infections. Mm. That's why I, a lot of times I, uh, I'll have someone ask me, like, well, can't you give me something stronger? I want a stronger antibiotic. And you can't think about antibiotics as stronger and weaker. You have to think about the spectrum of bugs that they kill. There are, there are reasons we use certain antibiotics for a pneumonia versus a skin infection versus a urinary tract infection. It's because we know what kind of bacteria are likely to grow there and certain antibiotics work better there. Or maybe that antibiotic gets into lung tissue better, or maybe that antibiotic will penetrate the urine better, that kind of thing. So it, it's good not to think there's like a ladder of antibiotics with the strongest one way up at the top and the weakest one at the bottom, and your doctor's picking a weak one because they don't want you to get better or something. It, it's better to think of it as like a web of antibiotics that treat different things. Okay. And that's what we came up with through the intervening years between then and now, are all these new antibiotics but like I said, the problem is bacteria are smart. They're wily and they keep coming up with new ways to evade these antibiotics. And nowadays we see a lot of different infections. MRSA, MRSA being one of the big ones that I, I, I see that one in the media the most often that can cause pretty devastating infections and is very difficult to treat because only a few antibiotics work against it. There are other ones, um, Klebsiella, Enterobacter, Acinetobacter, Pseudomonas, VRE. There are all these different kinds of infections that now are resistant to lots of antibiotics. So in some cases, there are still a couple left that will treat them. I have seen cases where there is literally no antibiotic that will treat this infection. Hmm. Every one we have, we, and we, te that's, we still do it the same way. We put little antibiotic like circle discs in a petri dish of the bacteria and then see where the growth won't happen mm. I mean, it's the same kind of thing that that fleming accidentally did in his lab and sometimes the bacteria grows no matter what disc you put on there mm. so the reason i say this is not to be a bummer and you're looking at me like i'm a bummer no i'm not i'm not trying to be a bummer what i'm saying is Overprescribing antibiotics, meaning giving someone an antibiotic that would kill a bacteria when they really have a viral infection, does no one any favors. It's not going to make you any better, any faster. It might give you diarrhea. You might get a yeast infection. And also, maybe next time that antibiotic won't work quite as well for you. Because what you're doing is you're selecting for those really strong resistant bugs mm -hmm. that, you know, are living there. Um, so overprescribing is a big issue with this self-administration. Um, in the U.S., it's hard to like go buy over-the-counter antibiotics. But there are a lot of countries where that's not true. You can go buy antibiotics at the pharmacy, mm -hmm. just like you would buy Tylenol or something. And that that's very dangerous because then you're relying on 
you know, everybody to just kind of know when they have an infection that needs an antibiotic. And you can't know that. I mean, sometimes even, you know, as a physician with all of the years of education and training I have, sometimes I'm having to make educated guesses and based on my experience and my knowledge and do the best I can with that information. There's no way you can do that on your own. Just every time you have a runny nose, think, well, I know I need a pack and go buy one over the counter. So that's really dangerous. Um, and then obviously there are antibiotics in our environment. They're in our water, in our soil, in our food, in our milk. toothpaste, in our milk. I, I, the milk I had bought today, I had to go to the drugstore, so I didn't have a lot of options. The milk I bought today said, I was looking because I was like, what about antibiotics? And I looked on there and it said, tested for antibiotics. I was like, hmm, well, <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay, that's, uh, I mean, it's a start. We looked uh, for them. Well, yeah, we looked for them. And then they just like stare at me blankly. Like, yeah, we, oh no, 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 we tested it for antibiotics. They're looking at you going, do you want to know? Do you really want to know? Yeah. But the the important thing to know is that uh, antibiotics, there's still plenty of antibiotics that work, obviously. They're still powerful against most infections. And we're still working to try to come up with new ones and new ways of treating infections. But we should all be better stewards of antibiotics people in the medical profession and then all of us as patients because sometimes I'm the patient to know that you know what sometimes you feel so lousy and you think can't you just give me something to make me feel better and unfortunately sometimes the answer is no I can't there isn't anything that's going to make you feel better faster you will get better but you're just going to have to wait it out go home and rest don't go to work don't go to school get in bed Get some tissues, watch some Netflix, and eat some chicken soup. Uh, folks, that's going to do it for us this week. Thank you so much for listening. Thanks to the taxpayers for letting us use their song Medicines as the intro and outro of our program. Um, thanks to Max Fun Network for having us as part of their extended podcasting family. And thank you to you at home for uh, listening to our program. Hey, uh, if you uh, haven't checked out Quarter Pointed yet, that's the show that uh, Sid does. Uh, sorry, Sid's dad does with uh, Sydney's uncle, Michael. Who is a real actual lawyer. A real actual lawyer. It's a show about law stuff. And I'm going to be on a new episode that's probably out. Monday. Monday. Mm-hmm. Uh, about net neutrality. So if you're interested in that topic or want to hear me bloviate on a different format, then uh, go check that totally out. So until next week, my name is Justin McElroy. I'm Sydney McElroy. And as always, don't drill a hole in your head. MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Listener supported.